And yes, we have been studying unity. This is the fifth and the last lesson on the subject of unity for some time. We looked at three lessons back in June, and now we've looked at the last two lessons here in August. Of course, that first lesson, Unity Among Brethren, emphasized unity in the body of Christ. And we saw that unity is to be desired, but unity can be disrupted. There's many destroyers of unity today. And then we looked at unity's dream. Then the next lesson dealt with Jesus matters and how when it's what Jesus altogether matters to me, unity kind of falls in place. And that, that others matter. You know, the biggest disruptor of unity is when selfishness rears its ugly head. And then we notice that attitudes matter. And that was the third lesson, as we saw that various attitudes are necessary for unity. Then last week, we looked at meats versus vegetables. We just looked at a study of Romans 14 to look at the idea of my opinion versus your opinion. But today we're going to be studying unity of doctrine. There was not one of these lessons to this point that really emphasized doctrine. And it's not the case that doctrine in any way sits on a back seat. This was not to say doctrine is not important. In fact, the reality is if we can't be united on what God says, we're not united. However, as we saw Ephesians chapter 4, as we've kind of studied it some in the past, we'll be studying it today. As he began to emphasize unity, he talked about attitudes we had to have. Before he began to talk about the doctrine on which we must be united. And yes, we've got to have the right attitude if we're ever going to have unity among brethren. These attitudes are expressed in verses 1 through 4. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we've discussed how necessary these things are to unity. But then as you move to these next three verses, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so then, after discussing the attitude, he gets to the doctrine itself. Yes, the way to unity. Many people today attempt to unite Christians in a way that is not biblical. Somebody might say, well, we're not interested in doctrine, but in love. Friends, that's not Bible unity. Love's got to undergird it all. Love's got to always be present. Love's got to permeate everything. But love without God's truth 
is an empty and false love. Many years ago, this is seriously about 40 years ago, I was talking with an individual about a Bible subject, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And then he just kind of cut off the discussion. He says, well, I just think we'd have to ask, what's the loving thing to do? Well, I want to tell you with regards to that subject and any other, once again, love needs to be a foundation. Love needs to permeate it. Yes, love must be there, but we also need to be asking, well, what does God say about it? What is God's teaching or doctrine about it? And you take the book of Ephesians. Paul did not discuss spiritual unity until he had laid out the doctrinal foundation in the first three chapters. Unity built upon anything other than Bible truth is as the foolish man building his house on the sand. And you know what happened to that house built on the sand when the winds and the rain came. You know, as we sing that song with the kids, we'll say, and the foolish man's house went splat. And so it is if unity is not built upon God's truth, God's doctrine, if you would. Now, sometimes people have looked at Ephesians 4, verses 4, 5, and 6, and said, okay, this is an irreducible minimum and an inexpandable maximum. Never had I heard that until about the 1970s. And a book was written advocating these three verses as the irreducible minimum and the inexpandable maximum. You know, as I saw that at the beginning of, shall we say, in the 70s when I saw the book, and even now, I'd have to ask, can all of Scripture be reduced to three verses? And then I'd also have to ask, if you're going to reduce it to three verses, what three verses? How do you determine that it is these three verses Whether the irreducible minimal and inexpandable maximum. The reality is we must study it all. But today we're going to look primarily at these three verses. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. And I might add that each of these items that are mentioned by Paul Though he doesn't go into any detail or depth with any of these. It is the case that each of these seven things he mentions could be studied in depth and in detail. In fact, you could wrap your arms around the entirety of the Bible to see what God says about each of these subjects. And you find that it's far more expansive than just what is said in these three verses. First of all, we find in Ephesians 4.4 that he says there is one body. We find that this is affirmed elsewhere. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Paul said, As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So there you have it. Ephesians 4, one body. Ephesians 
12, verse 5, one body. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And so here, outside of Ephesians 4, 4, we've got these three times where we see there's one body. So that's certainly something of which we would stand upon on the basis of Ephesians 4, 4, as well as these other passages. But if we were to say, what is this one body? We find that this word body is a spiritual metaphor of the church. We find it very clearly explained in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And he hath put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in other words, if we, we're reading in Paul's epistles and we read body, one body. And so we might say, what is that one body? He explains it. The body which is the church. So there's one church. Now that might fly against the multiplicities of religious groups and bodies today in our world, but the Bible affirms one body or one church. We'd also see in Colossians 1.18, and he is head of the body, the church. Now, if you like grammar, you remember that word a positive. And that is where a, a, a noun is, is restated. Same thing, but just restated in other words. You might even say here you have a, a synonym. But here you have the explanation of the body is the church. He is the head of the body, the church. So it's very clear there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, that there's one body or there's one church. Yes, simply put, there's but one church. If we didn't have Ephesians 4, 4, if we didn't have those passages in 1 Corinthians 12, we should still know that there is one church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we find that Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As you look at that word church, the word church is singular. And so if we didn't have an Ephesians 4, 4, if we didn't have 1 Corinthians 12, we would still know that there's one church because Jesus only promised to build one church. Again, that word church is singular. But I would say this, there are some things about this church. For instance, there's its terms of membership. There is its worship when it is assembled. There is its leadership. There is its code of conduct of its members. Remember I mentioned to you someone described Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6 as an irreducible minimum and an inexpandable maximum. And it seemed to me that one of the one of the things that was sought to do with this phrase was almost to do away with all of the other teaching. The teaching about its terms of membership. It's teaching about its worship when it assembles. It's teaching about its leadership. To allow for anything and everything as long as we recognize there's one body. 
But I suggest to you by saying there's one body implies if you're going to be that one body, you've got to be what the Bible says about that one body. And yes, one of the things it does discuss is its membership and how we become a member of that one body. And to that we find He adds us. The Lord makes us a part of His people when we, with faith, repent of our sins and confess that faith and are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. When that happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we read a result was they were added to verse 41. And then we find those who were doing these things, those who were being saved, were added unto them or the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And so it is we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that we're baptized into one body. Yes, there's terms of membership. Somebody says, I want to be a part of the church. I want to be a part of the body. I want to be a part of... And what it is, is God's people do it God's way. What do we do when we assemble? How do we worship? You know, the actual word worship is not found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But I would suggest to you on the basis of this one body that it is implied. What does this one body do when it assembles? Well, in John chapter 4, verse 24, we find that worship is to be in spirit and in truth. And then as we take from Acts onward through the epistles, we can see what they did when they assembled. And we find the prayers We find the Lord's Supper and giving. We find the preaching or the teaching. And we find the singing. And so as we want to be that one body, this is what we do when we assemble. It's leadership. We can read that when congregations were able, they appointed elders and deacons. It's code of conduct. We're to live holy and righteous lives. One body. And there's a lot of things implied with that phrase. Next, one spirit. Yes, of course, this would speak of the Holy Spirit. Just as there's one Lord and one God, there is one spirit. And though we won't be going into detail about this, There's a lot of things to be studied and understood about this one Holy Spirit. And next we see that there is one hope. Now I suggest to you, today some people are putting their hopes in all kinds of things. And what they hope for often is too worldly and so temporary. If we were to say, well, what does the Bible say is our one hope? There's one central hope for every Christian. I think Titus 1-2 tells us what it is. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. In hope of eternal life. What do you hope to have for lunch? I know because Tish cooked a good bit of yesterday afternoon and evening and this morning. And I know what's there. 
But I want to tell you, that's not my one hope. Don't you hope that one day none of us are wearing masks? But that's not my one hope. Won't you be glad when we can shake hands and hug again? And some people might be saying, no. (laughs) Most of us, yes. But that's not my one hope. For all of the many that are sick, some sick unto death, and we pray for them and we hope that they are better. Is that our hope? Yes, it's a hope. But that's not our one hope. Our one hope is eternal life. It's heaven. And everything we are, have, do in this life ought to be wrapped around that one hope. We need to be people who are heaven bound and we know we're heaven bound. And that is our one hope. But let me ask you, do you have this hope? Hope of eternal life. Then he says in verse 5, there is one Lord. If we are confused about who is Lord, the Bible is very clear. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he had proved this Jesus that you had crucified had been resurrected. That's much of his sermon. As you come to the conclusion of it in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. No doubt, Jesus is that Lord. Jesus is the one Lord. In Acts 10, verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Not only is Jesus Lord, He's Lord of all. Jesus is that Lord. And if you're not convinced, this phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it depends on the translation you use as to the number of times you're going to find it. But 85 times in 82 verses in the King James Version, you're going to find this phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that identify who the Lord is? The Lord is Jesus Christ. And he says, there's one Lord. Oh, by the way, what does Lord imply? Friends, the word Lord implies, among other things, it implies authority. Authority. He's the one that we bow to. He's the one that we submit to. He is the one that we follow. He's our Lord or Master. And then next we see there is one faith. One faith. Now the word faith is used in various ways, somewhat depending upon the context. Sometimes it's a subjective, personal faith. It would seem that a time or two this word faith in Romans chapter 14 is used with regards to the idea actually of opinion. But there is sometimes it's used of the faith. And I think that's how it's used here. That is objective, specific content of Christian teaching. Notice, for instance, in Colossians 2, verse 7, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. The faith. 
And if we were to say, what's the faith? It says, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So in other words, the faith that consisted of what you've been taught, of which you're now living, abounding in, and of which you're thankful for. Something they've been taught. Look as well, Romans chapter 10, verse 8. What does it say? The Word, the Word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we preach. So they're preaching. The content of what they preached that could be in your mouth and in your heart it's called the faith. The faith. Here in Ephesians 4 verse 5 there's one faith. So there's one body of teaching. There's a unified body of teaching within the New Testament. One faith. Then he says there's one baptism, verse 5. This baptism is immersion. We know this because it's described as a burial in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And in fact, that Greek word baptizo means immersion. And this is how the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of the eunuch are described. Immersion. So this, there's one baptism. But this one baptism is immersion. My mother was raised in a religious tradition where babies were sprinkled. That's not Bible baptism because baptism itself means immersion. But we would also find about this baptism that it is for the forgiveness of sin. So you find in Acts 2 verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see the purpose and the reason for this baptism. This immersion is not just for any reason. I have an idea that some of you have pool or access to a pool. Or maybe there's a, well, there's not any clear creeks in Alabama. My wife's not too keen on our dirty creeks that we have in Alabama. Missouri, they are clear. Also, you have to wear shoes when you get in them because of the rocks. But I want to tell you something. On these hot days like this, some have... They've immersed themselves in that pool. They've immersed themselves in that creek or that lake. The purpose? No, not forgiveness of sins. It's to cool off, to refresh. This immersion was for the forgiveness of sins. And they would also say that this immersion was in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as you find in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. So even as we look and see, it says there's one baptism. It's not a matter of what I think or you think about what this baptism is. It's a matter of what God says this baptism is. And then last of all, it says, One God and Father of all. This is that seventh one in Ephesians chapter 4. In Malachi 2.10, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? So, of course, this... One God is our Father. In Ephesians, God is emphasized as Father. He is the Father of all. He is my Father. And He is your Father. And that does bring us to the end of these seven ones in Ephesians. Be careful about this idea of irreducible minimum and inexpandable maximum. Be careful about that idea. 
because Paul doesn't define these seven things as such. And in fact, these seven things imply a lot of things as pertains to each of these seven things. I can't reduce all of Scripture to three verses. Unity and doctrine, that has to do with unity of what God says. We today, living under the New Testament law of Christ, we ought to recognize that from Matthew to Revelation, here is my law, here is my guide. Here is where I base doctrine. And there needs to be unity of doctrine. Attitude, attitudes matter. Attitudes count. Too many times men have stood on the same doctrine and platform of doctrine and then divided because they had ugly hearts and ugly attitudes. But even if we have love in our hearts, we've still got to stand on that same doctrine. Unity. How God wants it. Jesus prayed for it. How we should desire it. And let's be determined to endeavor, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace.